Welcome to Leadership Arts Review, a dynamic podcast about the art and science of leadership. Join us as we explore a different leadership book each episode. We'll help you navigate all the theories and strategies out there and find the elements that work for you. We'll share what we liked, what we learned, and what we recommend. I'm Kate. I'm Nitya. I'm Alyssa. episode, we will be discussing Who Do We Choose to Be by Margaret J. Wheatley. Writing about this book, Margaret Wheatley said, This book is born of my desire to summon us to be leaders for this time as things fall apart, to reclaim leadership as a noble profession that creates possibility and humaneness in the midst of increasing fear and turmoil. I know it is possible for leaders to use their power and influence, their insight and compassion, to lead people back to an understanding of who we are as human beings, to create the conditions for our basic human qualities of generosity, contribution, community, and love to be evoked no matter what. I know Know it is possible to experience grace and joy in the midst of tragedy and loss. I know it is possible to create islands of sanity in the midst of wildly disruptive seas. I know it is possible because I have worked with leaders over many years in places that knew chaos and breakdown long before this moment, and I have studied enough history to know that such leaders always arise when they are most needed. Now it's our turn. This book, as you will hear during our discussion, is a call to action, a call for us to embrace the three things mentioned by Wheatley in the subtitle of the book, Facing Reality, Claiming Leadership, and Restoring Sanity. So I guess I want to start with the subtitle of the book, because I love the subtitle of the book, Facing Reality, Claiming Leadership, and Restoring Sanity. And the challenge that she basically poses throughout this book is to choose to become someone who sees these three tasks as their responsibility. I'm curious about what your take is, just sort of at that general abstract level of how facing reality, claiming leadership, and restoring sanity relate to the current leadership challenges in the world. So there was a something that she said right at the beginning that really resonated with me that was this idea of with everything going on, we can have this instinct to withdraw and to suppress. Reading what she said about that's actually the exact energy we need to push outward and to use. That's the energy we yeah. need to be good leaders was something that just struck me right off the bat, especially with everything that we have going on in the world, all the challenges that people are going through and the different challenges with the pandemic. People that have kids who are trying to to shuffle school and work, people who live by themselves who might be dealing with some real isolation issues and just how the easier option is to withdraw. Yeah. And the idea of the fact that that does actually take energy so we're expending the energy anyway. Mm. Why not expend it in a productive, contributing way was really interesting to me. So just that idea of what it means to face reality was a great place for me personally to start with this book. I was really struck by just the use of the word sane and sanity mm. in leadership, which I would imagine that anybody who has been living through the year 2020 can attest to the fact that there is a great amount of uncertainty and ambiguity and chaos. You hear more than once in your friend circle, family circle, work circle, 
that we're just, just looking for sanity, something to anchor on. I did like the framing of leadership as something to help restore sanity and point people in a direction and orient them. At the end of the day, I think in times of uncertainty, that's what people need. Well, they need certainty, but you can't always have that. So the next best thing is direction and values and principles to guide you in that direction. So I did like that term, sanity. I like the piece of claiming leadership. One of the ways that people avoid facing reality is when people in leadership who actually have the power devolve responsibility down to the people on the front lines and the people who are not actually empowered to make systemic changes and the passing the buck that happens when one is defensive and not facing the reality that, hey, actually I'm the leader and that piece of claiming leadership, actually I'm going to use the responsibility that I have to take responsibility and make choices and stand for something and accept that I'm responsible for the consequences. And she has a phrase where she says, facing reality is empowering. And I think that's exactly what you're speaking to, Kate, is that feeling of helplessness that we sometimes get when there is uncertainty and chaos and and even sadness and trauma. It can be countered by standing up and facing and claiming. Yeah. She's got a lovely quote quite late in the book where she describes Sane leadership is developing the capacity to observe what's going on in the whole system and then either reflect that back or bring people together to consider where we are now. Sane leadership is actually just being here and starting where we are and being in community. Yeah. I certainly know that that's what feels sane right now during the pandemic is reaching out and finding my communities and being like, okay, how do we make the best of this? Presence and connection. And I think there's something there about the fact that any of us can claim leadership. And I know that all three of us have talked about this in in lots of other contexts that you don't have to be the CEO to claim leadership. Yeah. So thinking about what it means for you as an individual to claim leadership and contribute to bringing some more sanity, that it's within our own power. We don't have to wait to be invited into leadership. So she's got these six areas where she says, okay, let's look at reality here. And what does leadership and sanity look like in these contexts? And she starts with this one about the arrow of time. And she lays out these six areas where she invites us to face reality, claim leadership and restore sanity. And she starts with this one on the arrow of time, which puts us in the arc of rise and fall of civilization. And Mm -hmm. she puts us in the falling of civilization piece. How did that land? What was that like to read? <laughs> well, she did explicitly say this might be depressing, right? Yeah, well, right. she did. Yeah. <laughs> and I was glad she did that because I just thought at the very beginning reading that, I was like, oh, this is going to be a long read. <laughs> it's going to be tough to get through because it sounded very fatalistic. And then she turns it around into this is just reality. And this is, that's part of facing reality. Yeah, it is. I really like that framing, Alyssa, because I remember when I was reading it, I had some callbacks to concepts from religion and science. A lot of the world religions talk about the fact that we're at the the end of times and things. I know Hinduism has this concept called Kaliug. And in science, there's this concept of entropy and the fact that everything eventually 
descends into disorder. So it's interesting in all these different disciplines, it has the same concept of the natural course is to wither away and into disorder and human behavior kind of mirrors that. I think that part of the, the later sections are intended to say, well, how can you maybe not avoid that, but resist that or delay that by facing what's happening and not just succumbing to it. And some of that is rising above our biology and our physiology, right? Some of that is rising above like maybe natural tendencies to fall into fear or these other traps and instead, like you said, face what's going on and take that higher road. I mean, one of the things that I like is that she sort of lays out how these ages lead into each other. The idea that if you have the sort of flourishing of art and intellectualism and entertainment and it gets to a level of complexity and it just sort of implodes because people have extended themselves so far beyond the daily survival needs and have put emphasis in pure entertainment and fun and hedonism. And that, mm -hmm. that actually takes away from doing the things that are hard about life that keep things sustainable. And so it's inevitable that there's a backlash of some yeah. sort. And it's really bizarre from the perspective that I was raised in to think that all of these goods that my parents' generation were committed to manifesting in the world are actually the cause of this gap. But yeah. then when I look at my skill set, I wasn't raised to do all sorts of practical things that actually need to happen. <laughs> and so it makes sense to me that it happens on a cyclical level. Yeah, it's interesting what you said there about filling gaps. I think we do see human progress and human advancement in that way of there's this need and we're filling that need. It does raise the question in the context of this book around, well, how are we defining need? And by addressing certain needs, are we taking ourselves away from more fundamental needs that we have, that communities have, that people have? And are we ignoring those in favor of addressing maybe these higher order needs when I think she described fundamental human needs of uh, community, connection, belonging, love, all these things. So it's a really interesting kind of comparison. She goes from this sort of big picture time scale to identity, which brings it down to identity as culture, but also identity as individuals. Yeah. And that jump from the big sweep of history to sort of individual identity, she's covering a lot of material. Oh, yeah. There. It's huge and it's enormous. One of the things I love about the way she sets up the book is that she says, take this slowly. This is a lot of stuff. <laughs> This is not a sit down and read it all in one evening kind of book. This is a book that she has laid out with space and with pictures and with short sections and an invitation to take a bit and mull it over and then come back to it. But this piece about the individual and the identity ends up being central to the next couple of sections that she goes into. What did you take away from the discussion on identity? I want to echo what you said about how the book is set up and the fact that she does start with this broad look at the ages and where we are. And then she starts with identity. And then I feel like she really nicely layers things on. I felt like this book could have been a full academic quarter. 
that we could spend on (laughs) it and literally spend the first week on arrow of time and the second week identity. So to get back to your question, I thought this was a really interesting way of introducing the idea of individual identity as well as collective identity and starting to get into systems and the identity of a system and the idea of being focused on self-interest versus being focused on group interests. One thing that I wrote down is what she talked about with ethics and found that interesting that that was in the identity chapter and the idea of ethics are how we behave when we decide we belong together. Yeah. 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 I was just going to say that the piece that she says sort of right in there is that invasive species are the ones that don't care about whether we belong together. Um, <laughs> and that's when things become destructive. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do want to comment on, on that a little bit because it, in talking about the various civilizations from the past and then now getting into identity in these other sections, I don't know whether to call it a, a metaphor and, or an allegory <laughs> or just simply a reference point, but talking about self and group identity in terms of, the living organism and all the different parts of it. This is what you were, I think, referring to, Alyssa, when you talked about a system. I was really struck by that, probably more than anything in these early sections, including an identity, because it just proves to be such a useful reference point to be able to say just in the same way that a living organism has these different parts that all have a shared goal, which is presumably surviving and staying alive, a group of people operates the same way. In summary, with the section on identity, this idea that leaders help to draw out what the ethical standards are, what the collective values and principles are, in order to enable individual action was what I found most interesting. Because in the extreme, of course, shared beliefs and shared principles can lead to all kinds of exclusion. And they do all the time. (laughs) They can also lead to really extremist thinking. And she gets into that too, and then the dangers of that. But it's it's such a fine line between an effectively functioning group of people with a strong shared identity and a strong penchant for individual action and really extreme exclusionary thinking. So I really enjoyed that discussion. It sets up a really nice foundation for when she goes into the next section about information and communication between entities because you have to have something that has been identified as an entity to in order to have communication with something else and then she goes into self-organization and of course self-organization requires the self to have been defined so Mm -hmm. putting the identity piece in foundationally both as individual and collective really lays up being able to go into what it is to be a living system that is in communication with all of the other things around and the information that we can dig into a little bit, but also then you have to be able to grow and organize using that identity as the defining place you start. The information section was interesting because she's got such a take on information that is not the way we typically talk about information. She talks about information being the source of all growth and development in a living system. And then she goes on to talk about the, what she calls the hyper-emotional space of social media. Mm-hmm. Even before we get into social media, there's a lot in the information section really about the difference between data 
and information. And I really appreciate that coming from some consulting background that would talk so much about metrics and be so metrics driven and talk about data driven decision making. It's not that data is bad. What I really appreciate her talking about is the context and the fact that there still needs to be some humanness around the data. She literally says that for decades, organizational leaders have had to bear the burden of measures that don't measure what's important. I honestly had a moment of gratitude for that sentence. I always felt like I was running against the current trying to figure out success measures. It gives me a little bit more leeway to talk about data and context and that it's what the humans do with the data yeah. that matters. The interpretation, mm-hmm. in other words, that adds that layer on top of it. Gosh, if I had a, a quarter for every time someone said data-driven decision-making, you're on me. <laughs> I'd yeah. be rolling in, in money. But yeah, I I agree with you, Alyssa, on the fact that the interpretive lens is that uniquely human thing that sits on top of the data. And I think one of the arguments in here is that it's possible, at least, that when we solely focus on data and metrics and the machines that make those things easier and more efficient for us, that it diminishes our own innate decision-making capabilities and actually might take away some of our power, which is, you know, a pretty, a pretty common argument against the, the rise of artificial intelligence and things like that. And I think what I found interesting in the argument is that we can actually restore our power when we apply the interpretive lens and, the, and our insights towards decisions and actions and don't simply churn out data and rely on data And I would imagine that that makes us, not just individual humans, but systems of humans, more creative and more resilient because we're drawing on interpretation and stories to be able to carry us forward, uh, not just letting the numbers do do all the talking. Yeah, it's the meaning-making piece. Yeah. Yeah, I've spent quite a lot of time over the last couple of years trying to work with people who are statistical outliers in various ways on psychometric tests and that sort of thing. And then they come in and they start asking for evidence-based protocols. (laughs) And I'm like, you're a statistical outlier. By definition, there's going to be no evidence-based anything because evidence focuses on the statistical norm. Yeah, it's true. And I'm sure a lot of our, our listeners can relate on some level. If, if you do any kind of work where you're asked to evaluate it or justify it or even represent it in terms of data and numbers, and if you ever have that sense of, gosh, I can't represent what I do in that way or the impact that I have in that way, I think that's kind of what, what we're getting at with this discussion. We are all trained as coaches. We do all the things as well, but we're all trained as coaches and coaches ask a lot of questions and then keep silent while other people think. How do you keep metrics about what is a good question? How many questions did you ask <laughs> that people thought about for how long? Like the metrics just, they're just weird and not meaningful. Right, because how, how does one begin to measure growth and success and happiness and all these things that in the coaching profession we aim to help our clients find? And that's probably true across a lot of professions that we do what we do because we feel a intangible and possibly uniquely human impact and shift in what we're doing that can't be quantified. So it it is interesting to see within this information section, the arguments 
for and against and, and what the role of humans is and what the role of leaders is and keeping the things that are possibly uniquely human close to us, not delegating those to machines and technology. That is an, an interesting segue into perception because how we perceive things, the limitations of our perception and the choices of perception that we have and that we can make have a lot to do with how we see the data and what we do with the information. So I feel like I want to take a moment now and just mention the last of the segments that she puts in, which is interconnectedness, because part of what's interesting about talking about this book, of course, is that she divides it up into these sections, and then each section is divided up into facing reality, claiming leadership, and restoring sanity, right. and actually it's all interconnected, so trying <laughs> to find ways of nice. uh, putting it all together and breaking it up is not easy she talks about dwelling mind as kind of the way that she suggests that we handle the complexity. This dwelling mind where we sort of sit in all of this stuff and just be with it quietly until it gives us some kind of settled thing that we can do in the moment in terms of action is not exactly our fast-paced, moving, <laughs> data-driven world. So maybe yeah. a pause to think about dwelling mind and the other suggestions that she makes about how we be with all of this. Yeah, I really liked this section because perception, in a sense, is all we have. It's all we can really rely on. And leaders are no different. I think when making decisions or taking actions, we go based off of the information coming at us and the stimuli coming at us. And that's okay, except for when we cling to them. So I think that this dwelling mind is the counter to clinging, that before you get too attached to anything, before you decide exactly what you're going to do or form an opinion that's too strong, <laughs> sit with it, dwell on it, because to have a clearer sense of reality, you have to let different stories come in, not just the first story. <laughs> because often the easiest story to cling to is the one that's first or the one that most closely adheres to our identity. We were just talking about identity earlier. Especially when it syncs with our identity, we actually tend to filter out everything else. And this is, I'm reminded of our discussion on thinking fast and slow from Kahneman because it's kind of similar to that where we have to take conscious effort not to have that happen and to dwell and to slow down in order to actually gain sharper focus and know what the full reality is, what all the stories are. Yeah. I love the amount of attention that she gives to the military after action review process yeah. and the structured post-incident reflection where it is acknowledged that Everybody was in a different position and saw different things and experienced the encounter in different ways. And that the process of debriefing requires getting the complete diversity of perspectives in there. And what really struck me was she talked about how long it took to get sort of the deep respect for everybody's perspectives. It was like a decade for the junior people and 15 years for the senior leadership. It's a long time to build that appreciation for the real complexity of different perspectives 
that you have to take all of them into consideration to have a chance of getting close to the hole. Yeah, we don't always have the patience for that. Indeed. This might be a situation where having some information, more than data, but some information to back up the case for patience, the case for putting something in like this and knowing that you're not going to see the most optimal results right away. Yeah. It's funny that, Nithya, that you brought up Kahneman when I was looking at the interconnectedness part and she says, life surprises aren't surprising. We just weren't paying attention to the right thing. I actually was thinking a little bit about conscious leadership and the idea of always being open and curious. So, huh, I wasn't paying attention to that. I was surprised by that. What can I learn from that? And how can I then add to my knowledge and go on from there? Yeah, for sure. And I, I'm probably the best example of this in the moment because I, I had a moment in reading this book where I found myself reacting and having some resistance to some of the discussion around technology and social media and its impacts on our ability to be present, to pay attention, to slow down, because it's pretty much set up for instant responses and instant gratification or instant rejection, as the case may be. And because judgments are formed so quickly, identities are formed very quickly. And and I think one of the themes in this book that I found is that slowing down is what really helps you understand what's important and what values are important. And identity is formed over time. In the world of social media and technology, it's possible for identity to be formed in an instant based on one thing someone says or one picture someone puts up. And so there's a lot of discussion around what that is doing to our humanity, really. And then the fact that kids from a very young age are born with devices in their hands and, and whatnot, and, and learn a way of communication that lacks a lot of the engagement and commitment and observant style of thinking that you need in order to really form lasting connection and lasting impact. But all of this to say, I found myself having a, a reaction to it because I'm a technology enthusiast and I'm someone who, who really strongly believes it's done more good than evil or at the very least 50-50 <laughs> and that it's, it's up for argument, that it's nuanced. And I know I, I wasn't ready to say that technology is bad or that it's precipitated our disaster or fall of civilization. <laughs> In a way, I should drink the medicine of this book and slow down and start to examine why I'm having that reaction and really to ask myself the question, okay, well, if technology has this propensity to have us focus on the instant rather than on the long term, then how do we as leaders work with that? What do we do with that? Because it's here. Technology is here to stay, at least for a generation And so what can we do with that? We can't delete it and we can't embrace it fully because it has its pitfalls. So what can we do in this moment to hold on to our humanity? And I think that one of the things that we can do is bring our humanity to the way that we engage with technology in a moment to moment kind of way, which requires some consciousness and some self-awareness and a sense of what do I stand for and what matters to me, which is sort of where she gets to at the end of the book is how do we put it all together and who do we want to be and how do we, yes. the book is called, who do we choose to be? And so after all, the, yeah. right. And so, <laughs> so she has all of this stuff that she talks about. And then at the end, she's like, so well, who do you choose to be and under what conditions and what's your level of commitment? I think that there are things that we can do where 
it really makes a difference. So one thing that I do in order to try and be human engaged with technology and slow down a little bit is Facebook notifies me when my friends have birthdays, right? It does. does. And it's so easy to put in a message that is essentially like click here and it sends the message. Right. But actually I take a moment to think of the person and remember them in a real life situation and come up with a moment and feel that connection with them before I send the message. And it doesn't read to them. They don't get this Kate had an emotional connection to me (laughs) moment when they see the message. But I feel like I'm being human in it and not just being an automaton putting out the message. And in the same way, if I get birthday messages, I actually take a moment to let the happy birthday land in me as being from the person who sent it. And I let that land before I respond so that whether I say thank you with an exclamation point, or I put a heart, or I just like it actually as a response to, I imagined you saying that to me. Mm. It requires slowing down and it requires consciousness and it requires choosing how I'm engaging with the technology. I like that a lot. And that's something that I would like to try and adopt myself. Me too. And I think you bring up a really good point in that what can we do a, to make social media or at least our engagement with social media more human and B, what can we do to make it less one-sided, yes. less of here's this and then it's great if we get likes, but what does it mean to actually use it with a, a little bit more of a people focus, exchanging some ideas or challenging each other or just connecting? Yeah. And in all of those examples there are with challenging, engaging, connecting, they're all two-way. They're all about seeing the other person or other people as people and not just uh, dots in the universe. (laughs) So many of the places that she's talking about restoring sanity, she's talking about making things smaller, slower, and not trying to be functioning on such a grand scale, not trying to solve climate change, but trying to do something that's good for the environment here with what I have, with the people that I have. And I think there's something very real about that. The moment that we start trying to function with large groups of people fast, we stop being able to take that time to really have the dwelling presence. I'm the mother of triplets. And one of the things that happens when they're little is the temptation to batch process is enormous. The temptation (laughs) to just like, all right, it's feeding time. Everybody eats this. It's changing time. Everybody wears this. It really is tempting to be efficient. And there are lots of, there are lots of parents of triplets who have to, because they need the efficiency in order to get through the day. I was really, really blessed. I had enough affluence that I had help and that I was not working and trying to have the infants and working at the same time. And I was able to let each child nap on their own schedule and to a certain extent, eat when they were hungry and that sort of thing. But that's with three. (laughs) How many Facebook friends do I have? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And you think about leaders leading organizations where they have to come up with solutions 
to problems that are increasingly novel that they can't predict. And batch processing is really tempting because you have a company of 15,000 people, 70,000 people, and you have to get them all through a reorganization or layoffs or a pandemic. And you got to come up with HR policies and all the rest of it. And it's really hard in those moments to think of each person as an individual or to, to use this notion of shared identity and shared values to actually take meaningful action. Like the temptation is just to say, what's the fastest thing to do? And I think this book, much like the parenting example, is a lesson for organizations to say, well, slow down and think about how you can use our natural propensity to come together and connect and self-organize, I think is the word she uses. How can we use that to actually move things forward in a meaningful way, not just in this automatic survival and fear-oriented way? Yeah, it's not just what's our playbook. Yeah. For this. yeah. And that there are benefits to having a playbook to start from, but that a playbook right. is not the be-all and end-all. That there is a benefit to not having to start from scratch, but if we just take a playbook and say, oh, we know how to do this. This is how we do it. We're going to miss some of those opportunities for better collaboration and yeah. for some better outcomes. And at its heart, that's where corporate mission lives. At its heart, that's what it's trying to do. It's trying to be, here's the identity that we are committed to. Here's how we are defined. Here's our story, our myth. And so let this be what guides you so that we don't have to have rule by rule implementation of everything. And you can be an individual living into that in the circumstances that surround you. And keeping those identities alive is an enormous process yeah. because every time you get a new employee and you onboard somebody new, how do you keep that alive rather than just something that HR downloads onto them on day one when they're not really processing in anything because they're getting so much data that the information isn't having time to settle. You know, it and actually, welcome the diversity that yeah. each new person brings into the organization. Because so, the yeah. identity of the organization, in order to welcome that diversity, has to shift and grow and adapt. Yeah, porous borders, as it were. Yeah, that is I think something that she mentions in the book for an, an organism that has borders that are a little bit more fluid, it's constantly changing and constantly adapting and you and you want that it, it is very much change and adapt or, or die. If an organization of any kind, whether it's a family unit or a company wants to keep thriving and moving forward, you have to not only allow but embrace those new things when they come in. I found it so interesting, Kate, and you mentioned this, the idea that Claiming leadership doesn't mean that you're going to change the world. Yeah. And I think that's something that many of us need to hear, that there are ways to have an impact and in her words, to create islands of sanity. Yeah. Yeah. And that I think a lot of people get paralyzed around leadership. I found that really reassuring and yes. a different way of looking at how do I want to be a leader in the world? And what does it mean for me to claim leadership that doesn't have to be as big as I'm going to change the world? Yeah, I love that, Alyssa, because I'm seeing a tie back to the arrow of time that we were talking about at the beginning about how it's constantly forward moving. 
you can look at that and think it's fatalistic and, and catastrophic, which, which I certainly did when I was first reading it. But another interpretation of it is the only way to move is forward. There's no going back. And so when you think about leaders who feel daunted at the task or ask of leadership, there is never a bad time to step up and claim your leadership. It's never too late. It's not like if you didn't do it in college, you can never do it. Right, <laughs> right. And, and any right. time is a good time because we're constantly reinventing and starting over. I think one of the concepts she details in the book is that there is no such thing as reversing. We can't go back and undo something. You can only start over or start there's only starting and continuing to start and moving forward. So hopefully that's empowering too, to those leaders who feel perhaps like some of those leaders feel, Alyssa, where, where it's daunting to say, well, it, the time is now. You don't have to wait to have it all perfect. And the other thing that she talks about is she talks a lot about emergent systems. And I think these go together because it's like you're doing these things and these things happen. And then something new emerges from what you're doing, which is often not what you predicted not what you expected and that you, then you can't go back once that's emerged yeah. you actually have to face that's what's happened that's where we are she has this lovely comment that's a quote from the Dalai Lama about suffering being good people coming together to take good work and then not noticing what's happening between them as they're doing it yeah. uh, and she tells the story of a chocolate chip cookie yes and, <laughs> like, I had never heard that before that was amazing to me you take all of these ingredients and you put them together and then you bake them and you cannot take the sugar out of the chocolate chip cookie once you <laughs> bake the cookie. <laughs> you could yep. not include it in the first place, but you can't take it out later. That's right. It's an emergent cookie. <laughs> it's an emergent property. Yeah. And I love <laughs> that she used it in that way because I'd always thought about the chemistry of baking as you add heat to a lot of things and they change in irreversible ways. But the idea that actually that's just symbolic of all systems, you mm -hmm. add the right things and just alchemy, something new comes out and, yeah. you know, whether, you, whether it's coal or gold, you got to work with it. <laughs> exactly. Because nothing goes away. It just changes form. I love the idea of doing an after action report on a batch of cookies. <laughs> Note to self. <laughs> Note to self. Next time we make cookies. I feel like we should touch a little bit on the very end of the book where she talks about who do we choose to be as the choice and that piece of commitment when we say no matter what, because the heart of her argument is once you've embraced all of this complexity as what it is, Claiming leadership really consists of choosing what you stand for, who you are, and then whatever happens, staying with that. I am this and I'm going to do this because I want to do this work in the world. And so systems can come and go around me and I will just keep doing that work in the world. And it's an approach to leadership that I find really centering. Absolutely. It's that concept of stake that you're better at than I am. I, I won't speak for Nithya, but that's what I thought about when I read this. And I would actually ask you, Kate, to talk about that concept of stake. So the idea of stake is stake is something that you already believe about how the world works, that you believe will lead you in the direction that you want to go. It's things like, when I remember that people are people, I serve the greater whole. Or... 
when I build a strong foundation, what emerges is productive. If I believe that building a strong foundation allows productive things to emerge, then if I set that as a stake, and the, the image of a stake is the stake in the ground, like you have a leash on a dog that you want to be allowed to run a little bit, but not escape the yard. You put the stake in the ground and the dog is tethered to it and can run freely. I get in a situation where I don't know what to do. And if my stake is build good foundations because building good foundations allows things to emerge, then I'm like, okay, what foundations do I need to sturdy up right now? And then I'm back on track. Yeah. And she talks about getting to know ourselves so that we can trust ourselves fully. And getting to know ourselves is understanding what do we stand for? What are those stakes that we hold to even when it's not easy? Our core values that we stick to even when perhaps especially when there are other values that clash with them. Yeah. There was the phrase that she used that I just loved, unshakable confidence and unquestionable humility. I loved that. And that unshakable confidence, this is who I am. This is how I'm organizing myself. And then that humility, okay, I keep checking in what's really going on. I got to check my perceptions. I got to check what information's coming in. I got to adapt and grow. I don't know all the answers. In fact, I probably don't know most of the answers, but I, this is what I do know. Yeah, that unshakable confidence is what can give a lot of people, a lot of leaders, the courage to put themselves out there and claim their leadership. And that unquestionable humility is the thing that hopefully prevents people and leaders from clinging or or getting too extreme or coming to decisions too quickly and allows them to dwell. So it's that push and pull between confidence and humility that I think creates the right balance. And now it's think away time. Each of our hosts will leave us with one thought, idea, question, or practice to think about and take away. I'll start with my think away, which incidentally came up kind of organically through this conversation. So thank you both for helping me land this think away. We had been talking about stakes not too long ago in the conversation, in the context of understanding what's important to you, what you value, what will help you stay true to to what's important to you as you explore the world and lead with freedom. So my think away for our listeners is based on our discussion of stakes, what is your stake for today, for tomorrow, for this moment, based on what's going on in your world around you? How will you show up as a leader? And to help you answer that question, jot down a stake, a statement of belief that feels true to you. Thanks. My think away comes from some things that she says right at the beginning and that to me are really woven through everything within the book and woven through my own stake and things that I use in my work, which is the idea of in your role as a leader, what will it look like or what could it look like to choose actions that support people more than technology. And in her words, putting people at the center of your decisions and actions. Nice. So my think away actually comes from a sort of activity that she suggests late in the book around central identity. Margaret Wheatley talks about herself as a warrior and she thinks of herself as a warrior for the human spirit. 
And she talks about how that name came about as looking for a sense of identity that pulls her forward into what comes next and what to do. A name that really requires us to be fearless. And for her, that name struck. For me, I feel like I'm much more a steward of the human spirit, sort of tending and pruning and cultivating and letting grow lively. And so my invitation to you is to find a name that pulls you forward. And now to put this book on the tree of leadership wisdom. Is this book at the roots foundational knowledge? Is it the trunk main body of practical wisdom? Or is it branches and specific tools? So I have to say this didn't come easily because, as I mentioned, I felt like you could spend a lot more or I personally could spend a lot more time with this book. I eventually decided that for me, it's a roots book because it outlines a way of looking at and being in the world. For me, it's that very foundational view of looking at the world that we're living in and then deciding how you want to contribute and what it means to serve and in her case, be a warrior in yeah. that world. I would agree with you, Alyssa. I also would categorize this as a roots book for, for all those reasons, but there's also one more reason I'll add, which is that when she talks about the historical context, the rise and fall of civilizations and where we're headed as humanity, to me, that is, it's almost literally roots. There's this historical foundation for the rest of the book to say that our understanding of leadership and how we want to show up in the world comes from our understanding of the past and how we have been. And I thought that that framing of saying we have to look back and understand who we've been and, and the direction we're headed in order to know what decisions we need to make now to either stay on that direction or change it, that puts it in the category of roots for me because it forces us to not only look inward in the present, but also in the past, and have an understanding of humanity that's much bigger, much, much more holistic than just our current set of corporate challenges, for example. It's, it's really looking at our future and, and destiny as a, as a species, which seems daunting, but actually helps set the whole thing in context. I do not disagree. I find that the rooting in history and the rooting in science, the living systems and biology, and she's got some quantum physics and some cosmology in there as well. Woo. She goes to the basics of we are in the middle of this space time. So what does that mean? is such a big picture view of what it means to be a leader. It's not grounded in anything small. It's certainly a deep root. And one of the things that I really do love about this book is the subtitle, this Facing Reality, Claiming Leadership, Restoring Sanity. Those three are the tap root. Well said.
this was Leadership Arts Review. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts. You can find more information and additional resources on our website at podcast.leadershipartsreview.com. Continue the conversation by following us on Twitter under Leadership Arts and Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn under Leadership Arts Review. Leadership Arts Review is a 4 Impala production. Music adapted by 4 Impala from Nathaniel Wyvern's Sanctuary of the Sky Gods under license.